The text is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll begin reading um, halfway through verse 21, all the way through the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul says, But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. You may be seated. Let's pray one more time together for the word. Well, Father, truly it is a daunting thing to see the sufferings of a man that was so mightily used by you, and yet, Lord, he was so weak in himself. Lord, we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, and we are encouraged to learn that you are glorified through weakness, that your power is made perfect in our weaknesses, and we pray that you would show us something of the sacrifice of the Apostle Paul for the gospel, and that you would show us, Lord, something of the costliness of following the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would in instruct us now, fill our hearts, and encourage us, Lord. Help us to learn from his, his example for our everyday life, though some of us be not missionaries, though some of us, or most of us, be not uh, on the front lines, so to speak, of global and world evangelization. Nevertheless, Lord, we all are participants with Paul in what it means to live in this world and what it means to be promised trials and tribulations in this life. Help us always, Lord, to look to Christ, to fix our eyes on Him, to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, until we arrive safely into your heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as the uh, scripture was being read or prepared to be read there, I was hearing some oohs and ahs because uh, 
I think you thought I was going to cover this whole portion, and I'm not. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 27. It's just too much here. It's just too, too expansive, too, too in-depth here for me to cover so quickly such a, a, a broad swath of Scripture. So I want to look at this first part, but the title of the sermon is The Powerful Weakness of Paul. The Powerful Weakness of of the Apostle Paul. And you remember, this is all part of a larger context in which Paul is going to assert his boldness through his boasting that he called foolish boasting. And even as we look at a litany of sufferings here, really what we need to remember, we got to keep in mind, is that this is not at the very bottom of Paul's heart the way that he wants to boast about his ministry. He doesn't want to engage in boasting, but because the false teachers in Corinth are boasting in their works, boasting in their achievements, boasting in their human distinctives, the apostle is, if you would, he is, as it were, beating them at their own game here. By boasting of what he has done, he is both showing that he is a greater servant of Christ, and he's also showing the true nature of what it means to serve Christ. And it is not glorious as some would see glorious, but it is really truly a life of suffering, a life of affliction, a life of, of, of being poured out as it were. And I want to remind us of that very thing. We could split really this whole passage up into two big sections dealing with Paul's suffering. The first deals what we could call his external hardships, and that is verses 22 to verse 27. And then what, what we could call his internal heartache, his internal heartache. One is in the service of the gospel. The other one we can say is in the service of the church. Both of them, however, is ultimately and primarily in the service of Christ and what it means to serve Christ. But let me begin by saying that this whole passage shows us Paul's devotion to the Lord and the costliness of discipleship and the fact that for the Apostle Paul, this is what he calls worship. It's just amazing to me. The suffering, the affliction that he went through is what he calls worship. This is an offering. His whole life is being poured out. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, let me read that Philippians passage for you. Paul says there, as he is recounting again what he goes through in the gospel, he tells the Philippians, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, he says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you to rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. In other words, the things that he suffered in the ministry, Paul saw as joy-producing worship. And you might say, well, some of the things that he went through here, I don't see how anybody can get joy out of. You will get joy out of it if you have the proper perspective, a perspective that we'll talk about. In 2 Timothy, again, Paul says in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He uses temple worship language to describe the nature of his ministry, that his life was, as it were, just a sacrifice, just an offering. He saw himself as up on the altar of God being sacrificed for the worship of God. Just an amazing perspective. And if we look at 
Paul's sufferings with the right perspective, we should really stand in awe of this man. We should stand in awe that in the extent of his sufferings, he always kept an eternal perspective. He never lost sight of eternity. He never lost sight of the goal. I thought, you know, practically for our instruction, how simple is that for us to apply? Do we lose sight in the smallest trials and in the smallest tribulations that we go through? Do we lose sight of the goal? Do we lose sight of our eschatological future? The fact that all of the trials that we are going through are just bringing us closer and closer and a a work is being done in our own lives and exceeding weight of glory is being revealed in our own lives. So we can glean and we can learn from the example of Paul even in the depth of his suffering. But let's begin to look at his boasting, if you would. He begins, number one, with his Hebrew heritage. No doubt the false teachers were using these phrases to their advantage. This is one of the reasons why they say those that were in Corinth disturbing the peace of the church were none other than the Judaizers. That's probably right. Look at verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? so am I. So all of those things having to do with Jewish pedigree. And I would say each one of these probably accents a different aspect of Jewishness, okay? The first term, Hebrew, kind of a rare term in the New Testament. It's not used very often, but it probably serves to convey the idea that they were claiming to be of pure Jewishness. That is to say, they weren't Hellenistic Jews. They were Hebrews. They spoke the Hebrew language. And really what it was, it was an attempt to try to impress the converts in Corinth with their Jewish ethnicity. That's really what it was. Paul, we know from the scriptures, knew Hebrew, of course. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He also was, according to Acts 21, verse 40, and 22, verse 2, and many other places, probably also fluent in Aramaic. And we know that he knew Greek. And so Paul, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, he was familiar with the the language of his times, and he was familiar, more importantly, with the Old Covenant, Old Testament language of the Hebrew text. We know that from Paul because Paul would say this about himself, that he was, if when it came down to being Jewish, he was... A Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Philippians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he sort of gives us another view of his former life. You remember he says, For you have heard of my former manner in the life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And in verse 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and my own countrymen, or among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Isn't that amazing? The Apostle Paul, he applied himself to the ancestral traditions of Judaism with great fervor. He was extremely zealous. He was obsessed. He was what we would call a fanatic. And, as Paul would say in Romans, he was, uh, he was zealous for God, but without knowledge. And it wasn't until he had the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ that his zeal was useful for God. And just as they were probably these false teachers claiming to be Hebrews, they were probably also claiming to be Israelites. Now, what's the distinction? Hebrew-Israelite. Is there any distinction? I would say maybe the only distinction is this. 
is that by claiming to be a Hebrew, you were emphasizing your language, but claiming to be an Israelite, you were emphasizing your race, your ethnicity, the fact that you were part of God's chosen people, that you were part of God's race that he had chosen, his privileged race, privileged nation. And there's probably also a messianic connection here. If you turn to Romans chapter 9, there's probably a messianic link to that, the use of that term Israelite that they were probably using to their own aims, for their own ambitions, for, for their own goal. And uh, in Romans 9 verse 4, we might have a possible clue. It says, uh, speaking of Paul's kinsmen, they are Israelites whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Jesus being called God blessed forever. And that's right. But they were probably trying to make a connection as Israelites that the Messiah comes through us. So they were trying to associate themselves as closely as possible to that type of credential. And then lastly, he says, are they descendants of Abraham? Now what could possibly be the difference between now Hebrew, Israelite, and now a descendant of Abraham? Well, all of them speak of Jewishness in general to be sure. But when you say that you are a descendant of Abraham, you are putting yourself in the stream of the Abrahamic blessing. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the covenant that God made with Abraham. So this is probably more of a salvific reference, dealing with salvation. It's saying we are of the faith of Abraham. We are of the religion of Abraham. Isn't it amazing that even today so many people try to go back to Abraham? Muslims try to make a big deal of the fact that they connect themselves with the prophet Abraham. Everybody tries to go back to the, 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 the original patriarch to try to root and ground their religious beliefs in the covenant that God made with him, knowing that that was who God decided to bless. But we ultimately know that we are the descendants of Abraham, those who are of faith, according to Galatians chapter 3. But uh, in all of this, they were trying to impress the people with both their ethnicity and their ethics, if you would, their religion, their spirituality. And Paul is saying, look, if this is the name of the game, if this is the way, this is the route you want to go, if these are the types of things you want to boast about, he says, I more, I am just as bold myself, he says. In Philippians chapter 3, I have to mention this passage because it really is the classic text where Paul really just lays out his credentials. You remember? He says in chapter 3, verse 4, Philippians, he says, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. What's that all talking about? Well, that's talking about somebody boasting in their religiosity, boasting in their ethnicity, boasting in the fact that they're in their covenant status through their covenant signs like circumcision. He says, I far more. So this is really a, a close parallel to what we're seeing here. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. 
Now, I don't have time to develop each, one, uh, each aspect of this passage out of Philippians, but suffice it to say that everything he mentions is that which was ideal for a religious Jew, to be circumcised on the eighth day, to be, if you're going to be in the law, to be of the strictest sect, like a Pharisee. And so Paul said, this is who I was. So if anybody has the ground to boast about any of this stuff, I far more. But he doesn't just deal with his Hebrew heritage, but he also deals with the subject of service to Christ. And this is really where the litany of his sufferings comes. Verse 23, back in 2 Corinthians. Paul's indomitable service. Paul's indomitable service. Are they servants of Christ? They were claiming to be servants of Christ. They were probably trying to tell the people the great servants or service that they were rendering to Christ, the great sacrifices that they had made on behalf of Christ. And Paul is saying, wait a minute, these men are claiming to be servants of Christ? And then the comparative comes in, sort of a soliloquy, really, a speaking out loud. I speak as if I'm insane, he says. I, I'm more so. And then he goes into this whole list of labors, imprisonments, beatings, dangers of death, the threat of death, his, his, um, the fact that he was whipped, the, fa- the fact that he was beaten with rods, the fact that he was stoned, the fact that he was shipwrecked, the fact that he was out in the middle of the ocean floating around and not knowing whether or not he was going to live. That is the extent of his sacrifice. So he moves not just from being equal with them, if they want to talk about being Jewish, I'm Jewish too, but now not just equal to the claims of the false teachers, but superior to them in service. He is just as bold as they are if they want to talk about being Jewish, but he is more zealous than they are if they want to talk about sacrificing for Christ. Paul's service in the gospel is indomitable and it is incomparable. It is indomitable because he can't be stopped. It is indomitable because nothing stops this guy from moving forward. Nothing can stop him. He just keeps going. He's indomitable. He's unstoppable. He's relentless in his service for Christ. And he knows that. He knows that his life was Christ and to die was gain. And it is with that perspective that the Apostle Paul could not be stopped. How can you stop a man that looks at the face of death and says, this is the access to paradise. Death means for me a promotion. How do you stop someone like that? You can't stop him by beating him. You can't stop him by locking him up and putting him in jail. You can't stop him by stoning him. You think of the martyrs of the early church, Polycarp, you can't stop an old man like Polycarp by burning him because he knew that like Stephen, Jesus Christ the righteous was waiting for him in his heavenly kingdom ready to receive his spirit upon death. And when somebody has that type of eschatological hope and eschatological joy, when somebody lives with that type of perspective, that eternal perspective you are finally earthly good. And you are good. You're, you're, you're a workman that God can use. You're useful for the master. 
now that you have shed your love of the world. I remind us, brothers and sisters, of what Jesus said. If you love your life in this world, you will lose it. If your whole identity is wrapped up in what goes on here in planet Earth, in this, you know, your nine to five at work, your paycheck, your career, your family, whatever, your status of life, you will lose your life for eternity. Don't love the things of this world, John says. Don't love the things of this world. Learn to fall out of love with the world. That's what we ought to do. Our heritage is just like His. And our heritage is better than any heritage of any false teacher or any cult or any false religion. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I am insane. He knew the depth of his sacrifice. He knew how he had ministered and the tireless hours that he put into the gospel and how he served tirelessly. He labored, as Paul says, I labored, 1 Corinthians 15.10, I labored more than all of them, more than any other apostle. Paul exceeded all all of them in terms of his labors, in terms of his sacrifice, what he gave. He gave it all. He gave everything. He gave his blood, sweat, tears, time. Is your time precious? I can tell you. I confess to you my time is precious. I don't like to lose my time. It's my time. It's my personal time. And I can be very greedy with my time. Because I want to read that commentary, or I want to do this, or I want to do that. Things that conflict with my time, I look at that as a sacrifice, as a burden. Do you know how much time Paul spent? Do you know how many times, how much time he spent investing into people only to watch those people fall away? And you'd be tempted very much so to think, what a waste of time. What a waste of time. I heard a pastor say, I spent a whole year discipling a young man every, every week. We'd get together six o'clock in the morning for coffee and I'd just pour into this young guy over, over, and over only to see him fall away. Is that a waste of time? It's not a waste of time if you have an eternal perspective on things. If you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. His labor was breathtaking. When we look at what he went through, just one of these words, I thought, I better go through this text because just one word, like imprisonment. We could do a whole theology of the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he wrote a significant part of his letters from prison. There he is in prison, writing about joy. There he is under house arrest, writing to the Philippians about rejoice, always rejoice. We can look at the beatings. We can look at the fact that he lived constantly under the threat of death. We don't do that. Some of us, most of us, but many people do. Many missionaries do. They live under the constant threat of death. I was so humbled. Uh, it must have been six months ago. I was open air preaching in South Lake with all these rich little teeny boppers. And uh, an Indian man came up to me afterwards. I think I've mentioned this before. He comes up afterwards. He goes, brother, that was great. That was excellent, brother. I'm a Christian. We end actually ended up knowing uh, we had a mutual friend. Anyway, he says, you know, this is what we do in my country. 
He says, but in my country, uh, they, they'll, they'll kill you if you do this. <laughs> That's the only difference. I felt about this big, you know. Here I am, opener preacher, right? And then he said, they do, they kill us. And, and he said, uh, matter of fact, a young girl got saved. And when she got saved and baptized, she went home and told her parents that she had gotten saved, Muslim parents. And her parents threw her out of a 16-story building to her death. That's the type of sacrifice that some Christian missionaries are facing every single day in the world. This is not just relevant to Paul. God is so wise in preserving the, the litany of Paul's hardships because there is a missionary that can identify with this far more than you and I can. There is somebody that's in the depth of despair, depression. Can you imagine being depressed in our life? You know, we can be legitimately depressed. There's no question about that. But can you imagine Adoniram Judson being sentenced to be hung upside down out in the rice paddies in India and the mosquitoes just eating him alive at night? You want to talk about depression. You want to talk about despair. Judson did go insane for a time, actually. He lost his faith, burned all of his writings. We only have one of his writings left. It's on baptism. Adoniram Judson was a very famous uh, missionary to the Burmese Indians, and through his missionary labors, 3,000 churches exist today, probably over that now. It was the conversion of his younger brother that brought him back to faith in Christ. He was a seed that went into the ground and died, and because he died, he bore much fruit. And that's what Paul is. Paul is like that. Paul saw that his sufferings were proof that he was in union with Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He saw his sufferings as evidence that he was in union, spiritual union with Jesus Christ, that he was Christ's. He says, now I rejoice, Colossians 1, 24, in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. That's a reference to his body, not his unredeemed sinful aspect of, his, of who he is. He says, I do my share on behalf of his body, that is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I remember when I first read that, I thought, lacking in Christ's afflictions? What's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Isn't it an all-sufficient sacrifice, all-sufficient? That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that there is, a, there is an ordained amount of sufferings that the body of Christ, the church, will suffer, will undergo in this age. And Paul says, I do my part in my body to fill that up. And so the implication to me was, what's my part? <laughs> Paul did his part. What's my part? He has his share. What's my share? And more importantly, how am I going to gird up under the share of sufferings that Christ has allotted to me, to you? It's all about perspective. I'm not here to tell you that you might suffer in this world. You will period. You will, you will suffer, and some more than others. Some more than others. Getting back to his sufferings, on five separate occasions, Paul was whipped 39 times. Can you imagine what his back must have looked like? 
39 times because the Jews had a law in Deuteronomy 25 that you don't whip a person over 40 times. And so the Jews said, we'll whip them 39 times just to make sure we don't ever cross the line. Somebody loses count and we don't whip them 40, 41 times. So just as a safeguard, as a safeguard, we'll whip them 39 times. Well, Paul, that happened to Paul five times. He was beaten with rods. One time, he was stoned. He was stoned. Paul will develop his traveling hardships later, but here he already indicates that he has gone through hardships like shipwrecks, where his ship had wrecked, like happened in Acts, what is it, Acts 26. And then that the fact that he spent a day and a half floating around in the ocean. He said, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. A night and a day, that means a 24-hour period of time. For 24 hours, Paul floated around somewhere in the Mediterranean wondering if he would see land again. This is daunting. This is breathtaking suffering that he undergoes here. Imagine Paul's physical appearance. Imagine what Paul looked like after all of these hardships. Probably nothing nice. Probably nothing, nothing no, like Christ. There was no beauty about him. He was probably a small, beaten-down little man. And if church history has any accuracy on, the, on, on what Paul was like, they, they describe him somewhere as, as having a, being a small Jewish man with a hooked nose. He's a hooked nose. He's already got that to deal with. But then he's already all beat up. His back is so scarred, he would probably never take his shirt off in public. I mean, this guy, this guy underwent excruciating pain for the kingdom of God. But that's not the big part about it. It's how he suffered. It's his, it's his perspective in the midst of that. It's his joy in the midst of that. Indomitable suffering, indomitable service, yes, but even more striking, more compelling, more, more significant, indomitable joy in the midst of that suffering. That's what's amazing to me. When Paul is battling the Judaizers in Galatians, he points to his suffering sort of as a as an argument as to say, look, don't let anybody trouble me anymore. You know what I've gone through. And I can say, I can attest to that. When a missionary, when somebody suffers more than you, when somebody suffers more than us, we stay quiet. We listen to that person. There is a certain authority, wouldn't you say, that comes. There are certain bragging rights that come with suffering like Paul suffered. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the stigmata, literally, the branding marks of Jesus. All, every scar, every whip, every stone, every rod, everything that he's gone through psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, mean that the brand marks of Jesus were on his body. He bore the marks of Christ in his body. Though all these things, through all of these things, Paul's service for Christ continued. He was, for all intents and purposes, an unstoppable missionary theologian. That's who he was. He was unstoppable. 
And how do you stop someone with that type of God-centered perspective, right? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, because where is Paul's identity after all? If he suffers, he sees it as evidence that he is one with Christ. If he dies, he sees that as proof that he is ready to gain Christ. How do you stop someone like that? Paul saw his entire life as a life that was lived in the back seat. Christ was driving him wherever he wills. It was as if Paul's whole life and his whole identity had been swallowed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about it. His whole life he spent in Judaism studying the Jewish scriptures, learning about the Messiah, learning Jewish doctrine. And then when Jesus comes, finally the apostle Paul knows the Lord that he's been looking for. He knows this is the one. He wraps all of his Jewish theology around Jesus. Finally, the whole purpose of my life incarnate right in front of me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, this classic, classic passage that should be like a banner over all of our lives. I have been crucified with Christ. If you don't have that, you can't have the rest. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul was truly the most Christ-centered person I have ever met or that I've ever known. I haven't met him personally. I can't wait to meet him. (laughs) And I'm sure he will be nothing to look at. I'm sure he'll be nothing impressive, nothing to look at. I'm sure I won't look at him the way people look at celebrities, right? There'll be no glitz and glamour about him. He probably won't be handsome. At least I'll have him beat in one category. He probably won't be fit, buff, and tough. Well, he'll be glorified, so okay, we'll give him that. But you know what I mean. God loves to, be used, God loves to use weak things. That's the nature of our God, and that should give hope to every single one of us, whatever situation that we're in. So again, the humility of the Apostle Paul really comes out here. His hum- these, these ways of boasting I mean, this is how you boast in the fact that you've been beaten down, the fact that you've been starved, the fact that you've spent, you know, a night and a day in the deep, the fact that you've been out half naked out in the middle of the wilderness somewhere. This is the humble, dependent servant of God, a true doulos, a real slave, and he was filled with joy and expectation. Oh, I love it. I love the Apostle Paul. For Paul, it didn't matter what other people were boasting in. For Paul, the only thing that mattered is how he would appear before God. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the one who examines me is the Lord. This is what God cares about. You know, the false teachers were probably boasting in the number of their converts. They were probably boasting in the fact that they had human approbation somewhere, that they had human credentials, human approval. Oh, the people, the, the, you know, the apostles in Jerusalem, they, they know who we are. Here's our letters of recommendation. Look, we can present our credentials. We can show you our, our degrees. Maybe translate this into our modern vernacular. We can show you how educated we are. The fact that I've earned a PhD and an MDiv and the fact that none of those things are bad. Of course not. But if that is the sole basis of your credentials and your being approved before God, you are doomed. 
Because God doesn't care about that. God cares about your heart. He cares about the quality of your ministry. He doesn't care how smart you are. He doesn't care how intellectual you are, how educated you are. He cares about the quality of your service. There are many men right now, folks, with several PhDs in Christian theology right now in hell. That is a fact. You have the German higher critics. You have men like Rudolf Boltmann who denied the resurrection. And Rudolf Boltmann knows far more about Pauline theology than I probably will ever know. But if you deny the resurrection, it doesn't matter how much you know. You've undone yourself. Because Paul was consumed with a desire to be pleasing to God in all respects, he was totally confident that he had labored like a skilled architecture or like a skilled architect as he laid the foundation for the church and he built with good building material on the church in the gospel. And this is what good building looks like. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like toil. It looks like time. It looks like you're, you're just being spent. You're an offering for God. Boy, I hope that this is landing on you the way it landed on me when I was reading this last night. You say, where is the depth of my sacrifice? And so I want to challenge us here at the end with some practical Im- implications of Paul's indomitable service. What does this mean for you now? How can we imitate Paul in this sacrifice? What are the things that you are willing to sacrifice for Christ and what it will cost you? Because listen, to be in Christ means that it will cost you everything. It may cost, it will cost you your life in this world. You can no longer identify with the world. And that the world, I mean the evil world system that is comprised in this life of all of the different philosophies and, and, and different ethics and moral standards and, 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 and different types of value systems in this world. You can no longer identify with moralism, we learned in Sunday school. You can no longer identify with humanistic thinking. You have to lose your life in this world. Paul's service was indomitable because he was willing to lose his life. He was willing to lose his life. He knew that his life was hidden in Christ, hidden in God. Is that your life today? You look around your life and you say, does my life reflect a life that is in union with Jesus Christ? Is my life all about God? Or have I compartmentalized God in my life? I say, oh, I give God a little, little section here at church, but then when I get out here, you know, I'm a different person. I'm a much bigger person than just Christ. Or is Christ your all in all? As Colossians says, you are complete in Christ. Are you? Are we? If we are Christ and it is Him that we serve, and it is Him for whom that we labor, how do we view our suffering? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because this is something that can land on every single one of us. As I was thinking about this, well, there's not a whole lot of missionaries in our church right now. We are blessed today to have one, to have two in our midst. But for the rest of us, we're not missionaries like Paul, but we suffer nevertheless. And I am more concerned to impart to you 
a proper view of suffering because you're going to suffer. Because you're going to get a call from the doctor. You're going to get a call about one of your family members. Because you're going to get let go from work. Because you're going you're to suffer one day financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's going to happen. It's that simple. I've only been a pastor for so long. And I've already buried several people. I've already had to be involved in a funeral for infants. I mean, you're, this world is filled with suffering. And we better have the right perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet your inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Let's stop right there. That's the first perspective we need to have, is that your suffering, your trials, the deaths that you die, they are not for nothing. That's the very first thing, that nothing that you suffer is in vain. Isn't that amazing? That is the effect that sufferings can have. The quickest effect that, a suf- that suffering and trials can have in our life is that we slip into despair. We slip into depression. But we only slip into despair and depression if we are devoid of a proper eternal perspective of suffering. That's it. Because if we have the Bible's perspective of suffering, we know that our trials, no matter how small, no matter how big, are working for something. They are actually producing something in you. It's called sanctification. You're being sanctified. You're becoming more like Christ. First Peter says, look, Christ suffered. And when he suffered, he left you an example of how to suffer. <laughs> Isn't that great? And then he goes on to say in First Peter chapter 2, he goes on to say, we are called to this. If you don't want to suffer as a Christian, <laughs> you know, if you think, you know, you bought into Christianity and you thought, well, it's just going to be this great moral life. It's, you know, it's a clean cut life. You know, I thought it'd be good to kind of add religion to my life. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity, according to Jesus, means you have to get on that Calvary road. You have to pick up your cross. You have to be ready to die to bear your cross or else you cannot be his disciple. Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, he says, as soon as the trials of this life come in, the cares of this world come in, chokes out the word just like that. That's how quick sufferings can either issue forth in false conversion or in sanctification. That's what they will do, one or the other, one or the other. But we have this glorious truth beneath the surface of our sufferings that all of our affliction is producing an eternal weight And I think when he says an eternal weight, he means a greater reality. Pain is real. Suffering is real. Tears are real. When you die and and, and when a person dies in your life, when when you go to a funeral of a loved one, that pain is real. Those tears are real. But there is something that's even more weighty and more real than that. And it's the glory, the eschatological glory that you are headed towards. It's just amazing 
the hope of the Christian. If you're not a Christian, you don't have this hope. If you don't have a Christian, it's you go from trials to the ultimate trial called death and hell. You go from bad to worse. That's when Joel Steen theology really kicks in. This is your best life now because it's only going to get worse from here on out. But for the Christian, he should have wrote the book, This is Your Worst Life Now, because this is as bad as it's going to get. You're just headed towards an eternity of endless pleasure. Oh, I love it. Think of that. Pleasure at God's right hand forevermore. Pleasure, endless pleasure, delight. This, that's your hope. Don't be ashamed of it. You're heading towards an eternity of bliss. I can't wait. I mean... Suicide's a sin, okay? You can't, there's no fast track to eternal pleasure, okay? But He is apportioned for us all trials, tribulations. They are determined for us. Lastly, I want to read to you Luke 14 and speak to you just briefly about the cost of discipleship. Jesus says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You know what that means? That means if you have any ulterior motive in following Jesus Christ, you, it will be plain. It will be evidence. God will reveal it. You will be exposed, and your folly will come out. But you know, finally and lastly, dear friends, as I think about the whole topic of Christian suffering, the suffering that Paul went through, the service that he gave to God, the afflictions that he went through, and the afflictions and the sufferings that are promised to you and to me. John chapter 16, verse 33. We will have tribulations in this life. It is a gospel promise. It, it should be part of every promised book that has ever been written. You are promised a certain amount of trials and suffering. But listen, I want to remind you, let's end on a God-centered note. God is faithful. You are in his hands. You cannot be snatched out. He is your protector. Jesus is your interceder. He is interceding for you to protect you, to preserve you, to cause you to persevere. Your hope is reserved in heaven. God is your faithful creator. You can trust him. You can entrust your whole life to him. Come what may, you are in God's hands and nothing can shake you from it. Nothing can remove you from his hand. Not your faithlessness, not the sin of the world, not the antichrist system that is this world, not the spirit and the course of the air that is at work in the sons of disobedience today, none of it. You are secure in His hand because you are part of His body. And if you are part of, God, of Christ's body, then that means that you will be where He is. That means that where He is now, one day you will be there. That means that when, when, that, that when He appears, you'll see Him and you'll be like Him. If you died a death like his, you can be assured of this. You will be raised to a life like his. That is our hope. And it's all about having an eternal hope, and we're not good at it. And that's why we need to be perpetually reminded to set your gaze on Christ. Looking unto Jesus, brothers and sisters, 
the author and perfecter of our faith. Not too long ago, I had somebody ask me, how do you look to Jesus? He's not here. So what does it mean, looking unto Jesus? It means that you decide, you decide to set your mind on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Whenever endurance is hard, and that's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, but whenever it's hard to run the race, run the race, right? With endurance. And then the participle gives you the attending circumstance there is this. This is the means of how you're going to do it. By looking unto Jesus, that's how you do it, right? Just like any runner in any marathon, you take your eyes off the ribbon, you start celebrating too soon, or you start looking down at your own performance, right? And you're going to get tripped up and you might fall. Have you ever seen a picture of that? I'm not good at these kind of illustrations, but that's happened. I think it happened recently in the news. A runner was running, and instead of focusing on the goal, he started looking at the crowd and waving. And guess why? While he was waving, another runner was running. He got second place. The Bible says, run as to win. Run as to win. Let's pray. Father, Lord, uh, I pray that you would blow the hope and the winds of hope into our sails. Cause us, Lord, and fill us and fuel our endurance, Lord, so that we don't lose sight of the goal, that we don't lose sight of the prize, the upward call of Christ Jesus, the whole purpose and reason for which we are, we are saved and we've been put and enlisted into your army. Father, I pray that we would use whatever metaphor we need in order to cause us to, to endure with greater rigor, whether we need to see our lives as a soldier in battle to have that battlefield perspective, that mindset, that soldier mindset, that warring mindset, whether we need to look at ourselves as that runner, that sprinter, that marathon runner that's going towards the prize, whether we need to look at ourselves as an athlete, like a boxer who doesn't beat aimlessly the air. Whatever metaphor we need, God, we pray that you would apply it to our lives by your Spirit, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us, enlightening us to the truth, opening our eyes to the deeper, weightier reality of where we're headed. We just pray you would do this, Lord, all for your glory, all for your namesake, so that at the end of our life, we could say with Paul, we ran the race, we kept the faith, and there is a crown that is waiting for us that the Lord will give not only to him, but to everyone who loves his appearing. We bless your name today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.